0: Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide, and we got another really special episode for you guys. This one's gonna be awesome. We got two guys on the line, so first time I'm doing a three-way call, a little three-way action happening here today, and um, we got Phil Vallejo on the line, which really doesn't need any introduction. You guys been listening to Phil, uh, works at Gunworks right now, doing some stuff, Marine Corps Scout Sniper Instructor. Well, we have another Scout Sniper Instructor. This time we got Nick who's the staff NCOIC of rocket mountain that's out there by Bridgeport, California. And they're part of the mountain scout sniper course. Um, welcome to the show guys. Grab uh, great to have you on.
1: Hey Frank, thanks for, uh, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. And, uh, Nick, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule, um, to, uh, do this. I'm excited for it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, really excited to be on the show, a fan of the podcast for sure. Um, no, this is awesome. nice to be. Oh.
0: oh, sorry, sorry. Don't want to oh, stop. <laughs> <bro>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you're good. I was just gonna say that it, it's great because we're gonna be getting your sort of active duty uh, perspective on some of the things that you know both Phil and I and Kalen and I have talked about. And so, uh, give a little background to yourself, Nick. Introduce yourself to everybody and and kind of tell them how you, you've come up through the Marine Corps. And, and so, just give them about a three minute little blurb on, on what's going on there.
2: All right. Um, uh, originally from, uh, Pennsylvania, joined the Marine Corps and got stationed in Hawaii for my, uh, first enlistment. I was with, uh, two, three, they did, uh, two deployments to Iraq with them. Um, after that, I decided to, um, uh, try out for the sniper platoon Went through the Indoc, got selected. I uh, went to Afghanistan with two three, and then after that, I went to school and ended up going to school with uh, Phil. And after that, went to School of Infantry, was a uh, combat instructor there for a while. Then from there, I went to three uh, five, took over as a sniper platoon sergeant. After that, I got orders to a uh, Mountain Warfare Training Center up here at Bridgeport, and I took over as the staff and two I C of the Mountain Sniper Cadre.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And and then Phil got a hold of me this week and was like, hey, let's do, a, you know, this podcast because, Nick, your thing is you're really you see the benefit of the active duty, the military law enforcement guys going out and competing and you're a competitor yourself. And so you're taking this information back to the, the schoolhouses, the units, and, and you're relaying how these guys can not only learn but improve to be a better warfighter down the road through the sort of the civilian competition section?
2: Yeah, so uh, when I went through sniper school, I remember like when I graduated, I was like, I, you know, I, I knew everything. You know, I, I thought, you know, 308 was, was God's caliber and that, <laughs> you know, I had mastered a long gun. <laughs>
1: um,
2: And it took a few years really Um, after that I started reloading and I started realizing, you know, 308 might not be the end all be all, but um, it wasn't until I had gone to urban sniper when I started to realize that um, I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did. And that the way I had been training was definitely not, conducive to things that you might experience while you're deployed. When I went to Urban, it really opened my eyes um, to the different types of shooting that I should be doing um, and practicing with and having my guys train with. But then um, Phil actually gave me an invite to go to a gun site down there. And that was when I experienced my my first PRS match. And, you know, going there, I was like, you know, I, I think I might do pretty well, you know, I've been, been a sniper for a while. Um, and I absolutely got the brakes beat off of me, you know, by people that are like landscapers professionally. And, you know, I had to eat some humble pie with that. Um, but what I took away from it was, it was like, there's so many things that I can learn from these competitions that I had never experienced in the Marine Corps. And that might not necessarily be the way the Marine Corps sees that people should be trained, but it's definitely a different way of doing things. And I think that a lot of um, like basic snipers need to be exposed to that just for a different way of thinking.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, Phil jump in anytime too, but yeah, I mean, it's, it goes back because that we get confused a lot. I mean, just as a little fun fact, when we were kind of talking before, here went with the the, the year I went to sniper school. Nick was born, so that, you know that'll kind of tell you <laughs> something what's going on there. But um, you know, like urban side of things for us. I mean, now it's completely different. But going back to my day with the urban side, it was the same thing you're gonna see with like Vasily Saitsev, enemy at the gates kind of mindset. You know, you're going to go and you're going to find a spot and you're going to hide and it's going to be in some avenue of approach or you're going to be in some kind of blocking or whatever. But, you know, it's those three shots, displace and get out of there. And, and it, it it's, it's just like enemy at the gates, you know. So now you guys are so much more dynamic, but still the training didn't doesn't really lead you or didn't until recently to that dynamic movement with a precision rifle, which is exactly what a competition is.
1: You know, I would, I would say, um, you know, in the Marine Corps, I think that the common the, uh, most biggest misconception is that, uh, snipers are shooting all the time. And, and all three of us know that, that I mean that's not even uh, near the case. Right. Um, you know, there was, uh, times in my unit that I had shot the bolt gun, I don't know, once every four or five months. Um, you know, when I was finally the chief scout, like I was, I got lucky, but still um, every two or three months I had a spread load, 40 rounds um, between eight, 24 shooters. You know what I mean? Um, and that was for two to three months of stamina. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Nick probably saw the same thing when he was a platoon sergeant. Um, but, you know, and that, that was with um, me knowing how to utilize the TNR manual and stuff like that you know, stuff that NCOs should do. Um, but you know, I would say the Marine Corps gave me a good initial foundation. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is that, uh, it's a very, what Marine snipers don't know, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And a lot of it I found is just a constant regurgitation without a really a deeper understanding, uh, for their own self truth. Would you agree with me on that there, Nick?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, And I really think, like, the most impactful lesson that I learned um, going to urban and then to competitions was, like, streamlining of preparation, you know, um, making that switch from static long gun shooting, where you kind of have all the time available, it almost seems like, to forcibly moving and adapting to the next stage of fire, you know, with all these unique challenges, and it's very dynamic. Um, I noticed that a lot of Marines that have been snipers for a while were kind of opposed to it. You know, they're like, Hey, we only have this many rounds. This is how we absolutely need to be training. You know, um, UKD in the prone, um, having the new guys on the guns where, which is weird because in the sniper platoon, you know, you go through school and then the people you're training in the platoon are the new guys getting ready to go to school. So you don't even really get to shoot that much. So, the ammo that you were talking about you know now it's going to the new guys and you as a hog aren't even really sustaining the skills that you've learned
1: 100
2: um, yeah i mean for so that for, was yeah it's, a, it's
0: not an it's not a new phenomenon we were in the same way and we had the crappy 173 special ball but we used to buy the 40 rounds for us each of us at the px 168s and because they just had started coming out with sort of the federal one sixty eights, and that was on us to go get forty rounds just to shoot. I guarantee, I shot more blanks than I did live
1: rounds. Damn, they let you buy ammo. And shoot <laughs> oh, dude, we carried it too. We carried it in our packs. That is, that is like on on like day one of school. Like no reloaded or factory ammunition through sniper rifles.
0: <laughs> we we weren't watched, man. We had nobody looking over our shoulder like that. And it, it we, we, we hauled that ammo with us as well because the 173 was so terrible and the 168 we thought was better. So whenever we went anywhere, we always had like a box of 168 in our rucks.
1: That's pretty funny.
0: Yeah. <laughs> back in the day, man. Like I said, we didn't have the magnifying glasses. You guys do, though. I mean, back what we were doing – compared to you uh, was much different, but not to get back on course with, with that. So, yeah, you start to see that this movement, this, you know, the urban, it, it's I do you, did you find that it's guys just wanting to bring way too much stuff like they're used to just coming from sort of the line unit. And then they're, they're taking that same mindset into the movement with you and not wanting to stick out. As far as, because we didn't mind sticking out, which was different. We wore, you know, out-of-spec uh, footwear, you know, with, with all the other stuff. We changed our clothing um, to not look like everybody else once we once we moved away from them. You know what I mean? But today, I don't think you guys can get away with that, can you?
2: No, not really. Um, it's definitely, like you said, we're under a magnifying glass, but... You know, the lessons learned from like Iraq and Afghan was to not look different than other people because you made yourself a target. You know, it's like if I'm going to go on patrol with, you know, a normal infantry squad, I want to look like them. I don't want to stand out. Right. Right. You know, to find a hide site. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that changed a lot of it. And then a lot of the gear that were issued now is just a lot better. It's not nearly as bad.
0: True. Right. ours. We we modified everything because it was just we were using World War II leftovers. You know, I carried a Prick seventy seven in a World War II haversack. You know, and and that was the 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 deal, man. But yeah, I can see that mindset. But honestly, I would have looked like an Iraqi to be. <laughs> I would have dressed up like them, <laughs> is what I would have done. But I, I get it for sure. Um, but but like I think that the
2: opposition we're really talking about is you know, why do you not, or why do a lot of snipers seemingly, they don't seem to go to competitions is um, when I was a student sergeant, I would ask my guys like, Hey, how come you guys don't want to go to this competition? And it seemed like a lot of them were just, and this is my own perspective, in my opinion, um, worried that they were going to get beat by civilians, you know, which is embarrassing when your, your sole job in the military is to be a, a professional long range shooter, you know, and this guy who's a gardener, just, beat the brakes off of you at this match, Um, which is, you know, humbling in itself. But it's also, I think that in a lot of people's minds, you know, they have this image that they want people to think of of Marine snipers as like dudes who don't miss, you know, these are the people out there taking those shots. And then when they actually see the reality of it, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I only get to shoot maybe three or four times a year. And I didn't do this well at this comp. And now these civilians see that too. Um, you know, which hurts, you know, like your pride a little bit as a man.
0: No, definitely. And, and, and so th- now you, you're kind of going out to your first comp. You did the gun sight. W- what was your second comp like? Did you cha- change anything in in how you approached it after that first match, where, where, you know?
1: That's a great question. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious to
2: hear this. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I got really, really lucky. With how I got introduced to the competitive shooting side, um, I went to a club match before the gunsight match because I was like, "Hey, I, I need to see what's going on with this." And I met uh, Nico Detour there, and he kind of um, you know showed me some tips and tricks and this and that and helped me out along the way. and at, at gunsight, he was also in the same squad with me and giving me some some tips. Um, I think that after that, before my, my next match was really an evaluation of the gear that I carried. Um, I took a two, two, three to my first match at gun (laughs) sight. So I was like, okay, two, two, three, not the best for this. Um, you know, people do well with it, but, uh, I just, I was using a savage action at the time. Um, and Some other people really helped me out along the way too. Uh, Nick Owens from Owens Armory hooked me up. Um, But what I got out of it though was definitely just streamlining and preparation for me, like things that I need to get better at on the clock going into each stage with like a mental checklist of like, are my dopes written on my, you know, my arm bar. Um, Do I have the dope already dialed on the scope before I go into it? Um, Watching wind as other shooters shoot making sure that my testrel was in yards, not meters, because coming from military shooting, everything in meters. And I think I shot my first two stages um, in meters instead of yards and definitely had a lot of misses. So it was definitely a, a reevaluation of my um, shooting style and how I went into something and analyzing it. And a lot of it, too, came down to I was just watching other people shoot. Um, in that squad, I, there was Jake Vibbert in there, Nico Detour, Nick Owens. Um, a lot of really good shooters. And so I, I got to watch and see how different shooters approach a lot of different barricades and shooting scenarios. And so immediately after that match, when I came home, it was like, okay, well I'm building a barricade, you know, and I'm I'm gonna start practicing the things I saw and didn't do well at.
0: No, that makes sense. Think,
1: um go ahead, uh, Phil. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna play uh um I'm gonna play like devil's advocate in the sense that I'm gonna be that narrow minded sniper with some of the sub- things you said, because this is how kind of the mindset that they would be thinking, like, oh, well, if I gave that guy a 308, he probably won't shoot as well. Like, no, you, you put a 308 in his hand because his fundamentals are so solid, you still whoop your ass. You know what I mean? Um, or uh, some of the things that you talked about, like in the Kestrel, like, you know, assembled something assemble, uh, as uh, yards or meters. It's like, um, you know, not too many, again, not too many uh, people really know how to use, even snipers uh, even though it's issued, know how to use that thing inside out, you know what I mean? Um, or to make sure the settings on that are correct to make sure it's, you know, pulling current, uh, information to make sure that, uh, your gun is reflected on that device, not someone else's, you know what I mean? Um, you know, simple steps like that, that are, are, you know, killer, especially if you're, you know, now you're overseas and, you know, you're ready to take a shot that w- only one shot. And you know, target that six hundred, but you're on your SAS, you're on your SAS and the, the main gun on your profile is the forty. Completely two different dopes. You yep. know what I mean? Yep.
0: And also so. how you so how you true it. To- go ahead, go ahead, Nick. Um, but yeah, <laughs> how you trude it is another thing. But go go you go, Nick, and then I'll kind of throw this in.
2: Um, but I mean this comes back to something that, you know, you you preach a lot in a lot of your posts, you know, having hard data, right? So if I had gone up on the line, you know, with hard data on my armband, instead of just immediately writing down with the Keschel, I probably would have caught those errors. I would have been like, oh, 560 yards, you know, 3.7 mils. Well, why is my Keschel telling me, you know, 2 mils? You know, it it would have been a a quick catch. And it is really important to have that hard data to fall back on just to make sure that, you know, it's a self-check. 100%
0: depth, depending on the time frame in which they taught you the Kestrel, and I, they, you guys still may be a little bit messed up, moving locations, and especially if it's a mountain situation. I know for me, like if I went in, in you know, the original way they said to do a Kestrel and to true it, if I do that here in Colorado and then I go to Florida to like an Altisk to shoot their competition, I have to fix it by about 50 feet per second. It doesn't translate automatically. It's it's fifty feet off. But if I find if I true the BC, and then kind of just nudge the muzzle velocity, I don't see that big a swing. So I think they're now they're starting to tell you guys look at the BC as well. Um, don't just depend on the DSF and that kind of stuff to true it. And 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 so I don't know if that's trickled down to you guys yet. I know they talked about it at a symposium recently. But um, I just don't know it, it, it. But that can matter as well without the it's hard funny data.
2: If you brought that up. Um, I was kind of shocked at how poorly we. I don't want to say the Marine Corps teaches the Kesh rule, but it's just not a well understood tool that we have. And you were talking about hey, like truing and whatnot. And a lot of times our students just don't have a really good concept or grasp of like what truing is and what it means. You know, so we, we have a truing target at like 860 meters. And we explain to them, hey, you know, you just chronoed your gun, right? So you just fired 20 rounds over a magneto speed. Why would you change your muzzle velocity? You know it's correct. Um, and so we have to explain to them, hey, like you can fudge your BC a little bit here to go up or down, take it off of the custom drag model, we'll go to a G7 and we'll, we'll adjust your BC. Um, but more importantly, if I'm starting to see errors at distance like that, we, we explain to them like, hey, you know, that Schmidt and Bender that you have that has been in the sniper platoon for over a decade, it might not be tracking correctly anymore. And so, you know, we do a tracking test with them and we show them, hey, like this doesn't actually track in 0.1 mil increments. So there was nothing wrong with your Kestrel it's just, you need to put the right information into it to get that correct firing solution so that downrange, it impacts where you're dialing I and mean, it makes sense to them. And that's kind of a, an eye-opener for a lot of our students.
0: Yeah, Phil, what do you, throw a little bit in there.
1: Um, uh, you know, the, the the Kestrel is a very uh, complicated device. Like a, it's, a, it's a love-hate relationship. Um, you know, I, I definitely, I, I don't, I haven't seen a data book being used in a while. Um, I don't use data books, but, um, I, I definitely, once I, let's say, let's just say, say this once I verify my data on my gun, you know, I know I'm, I'm good out to, let's say a thousand yards. The very next thing that I do is write down all my hard data, um, uh, in those same exact environmentals. And then I just stick with that. And anytime there's any really big changes in my environmentals, um, from that hard data, then I'll just maybe do like a real quick update. But, you know, I've been looking at these numbers for, God, I've so many, you know, sh- spreadsheets and stuff like that um, off different ballistics. Like, you know, especially with a, a M48-6, it's like you're not really seeing a difference unless you're shooting like sub-MOA targets out to about 500 yards. You know what I mean? Right. Um, or even 600 yards. Uh, but, you know, I, I think a lot of times people get too wrapped around, um using the cash is like a you know ev- like they got to spin it every shot you see that nick a lot like they're, they're spinning it every shot in between you know targets two and three that they to get real-time information it's like dude relax you got other pressing things to be worrying about like what the wind is doing
2: yeah exactly um no i don't, honestly i don't see them doing that a lot unfortunately i constantly have to remind students like hey what's the wind doing and they're like Well, I don't know. I'm like, well, you have a $700 instrument in your hand right there that can tell you stick it in the air, you know? And they're like, oh, okay. And then they do that. Um, So I think I wish they would use it more, to be honest with you. Okay.
0: Now, here's one thing, just because you guys were both instructors, and and from the student side of things, like being in sniper school is is just straight up student, you're scared of shit, and you're worried about what you screwed up earlier, and how that can affect you tomorrow. You know, so you're really sweating so much stuff. It's like, oh, damn, I got an eight on that observation. You know, what am I going to do now? What, oh, man, I better get a 12 or a 10. I don't know if you guys do 10 or 12 and, um, anymore. But it's, it's like, you know, I didn't do quite as well with this. And, and so there's so much pressure because it's so easy to fail out that I think that the Kestrel becomes a little overwhelming when you have to start digging into those menus For a guy who's sweating everything, you know, in that course that can kick you out.
1: You know, I would say, you know, when I went through Mountain, even sniper school um, and and when I was an instructor at sniper school. um, But I I specifically remember my time at Mountain because um, what they'll always tell you is that Mountain sniper school is the hardest follow-up sniper school that you'll ever go to, uh, which I I think is true. I think it's uh, at the highest attrition rate out of all the other schools. Um, But, you know, I I specifically remember my instructors giving me all the answers to the test. And what I mean by that was, you know, they told me, hey, these are the things you need to look out for um, uh, over here and and stuff like that. This is the data that you need to be taking, uh, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, what I felt um, when I went with uh, some of my peers and and saw, you know, my, my junior Marines that I'd send up and then come back unsuccessful, um, it's because they, they had, they came up there with a chip on their shoulder because like, Oh, I got this, you know, I'm a sniper now, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, but you know, even the basic things that you don't, you fail to do will kill you up there.
0: And well, that would go to the process that Nick was talking about, you know, that prior proper planning kind of thing to exactly. get to a competition to, to put all the, you know, put all your ducks in order to make sure before you step out that door. That, you, you know, you know where it's going. Do you have your arm bar going on? Do you have your hardcore data? You know, your hard copy data. And, and you know, in case you drop the friggin' Kestrel down the side of the mountain. You, you know, it's not going to be a case where the Kestrel breaks on you. It's going to be a case where you you break it. It gets run over by a friggin' truck. It, you drop it off the side of a hill. It, it's going to be something stupid that screws a Kestrel up. So it, to me, while like Phil's saying with the data book, yeah, I'm, I'm preaching data books hard again, but at the same time, I know you're not going to carry it, but at least be able to take that sheet out and, and, and have it as a backup.
2: It's funny you say that. Um, the, the data book for sure, absolutely. But what we, we really focus on up here is, because you used to have to mill targets out to a thousand up here. And we found that that's just, not a realistic way of, of doing things, especially with the, the weapon systems and the ammo we have. So we, we talked about it as a cadre and we're like, Hey, you know, we're going to allow them to use laser rangefinders now, but they're not going to do it during the day. So they have all night. So after we release them off the line at like 16, they have the rest of the time that night to lathe every TRP, target reference point that they think that they might need for the next day's shooting. So when the line goes hot at zero seven, the next day, there's no more laser rangefinders. They can only use their range card because if I'm in a hide site or, you know, an OP, what's the first thing I'm going to do when I get there besides sending up, you know, my location um, and a few other reports, but I'm going to start making a range card and I'm gonna start lasing things that way. If somebody does pop out, you know, I, boom, I already have the distance and the dope for that. So yeah, they use their Kestrel's um for data collection and giving them a solution but for the most part the students have to use the range card while they're doing the shooting they're not using a laser range finder or their to pull um ballistics because there's just not enough time you know they're being timed on the line especially when we do um shoots for them so they only have two minutes you know to get up there on the line find the target range it um and, and it, shoot. Yeah.
0: And Phil, that's getting your match book the night before, right?
1: Yep. Yeah. So uh um Nick, go go through us with uh what an OSOC. So OSOC stands for one shot, one kill. Go go through uh, real quick so these uh, the audience kind of understands what an OSOC is.
2: All right, so um for an OSOC typically we will have a target um six hundred and in. And the target is labeled with an O on the chest. So they know that that's the OSOC target. The students will usually be behind some type of structure or um, something that doesn't allow them to see the range. So each shooter will have, they'll be behind, let's say, a Connex box. We call that shooter up to the line. They come up to the line. We tell them, hey, your time starts now. So that student, you know, he gets in whatever position, whether it's on a rooftop or a tripod or whatever, he gets in there. And he starts scanning for the target. And he uses the observation skills that he learned. And he's looking all over the range for this target. Uh, once he sees this target, then he can range it using his range card or laser range finder, depending on you know, what school you're at. Um, and then he has to engage that. And if he hits it on the first round, it's 10 points. If he misses, it's usually um, have five seconds to re-engage. He'll get one more shot. And if he does hit, it'll be eight points. If he misses, it's a zero. Uh, we do four different OSOCs up at rocket mountain with the students um each one of them gets progressively harder so the first one's in the prone second one will be tripod third one will be off of a rooftop and then the fourth one will usually be a, a combination of different things probably with some stress added you know they have to do something to get their heart rate up like burpees or do a run before they do the shoot
1: pretty much a blind like you know now on the civilian side of the house now that i'm you know competing actively that just sounds mm-hmm. like a. Uh... Yeah. Blind stage. Yeah, blind, blind stage. Th- yep. 100%, which is one target, a generous part-time.
2: But it's the most realistic scenario that I feel that we can create for them of, you know, I'm 100%. supporting a maneuver element, yep. and I have to take this shot under time, under duress.
1: Yep.
0: You, I mean, you guys, Nick, should be definitely bringing teams to, like, a, a competition dynamic team safari because it's the movement with your gear across the natural terrain, there, there, there's some, you know, you got to shoot over around and, things, but you stop at a staging point. You can't see the targets or anything. They call you up that the team in front of you calls you up and all they're going to tell you, they're going to say, here's the pin and the pin is what you stand over. Then there's a left and right limit. And all they're going to tell you is if it's a one by or a two by, if it's a one by, you have six targets from one location. If it's two by, you have three targets from two locations to give you the six And all they do is they walk up, they go, here's the pin, there's your left, there's your right, you good? Time starts now. And then they step back. And then you have your time to engage those. You got to find them, range them, and competition dynamics doesn't pain them. You're looking for the black strap. They put them in the bushes and hide them. Like you'll get, out of the six targets, four will be pretty easy. But two of them are going to be a real pain in the ass. You know, on the three buys, they're usually not so bad um, but you gotta move and you're gonna go and probably you gotta figure out like almost ahead of time, do I gotta move with my tripod and all your gears gotta be deployed, you know, from in your hand and then deployed. You can't put your stuff down before the clock goes. You know, you have to have everything on you and then the clock goes and then you deploy and go there. But um, you know, the, the the question is is when you get up to that next pin. You might need something, you know, you don't know because you can be able to get two of them prone. And then the next thing you know, they got one off the face of the cliff down below you and you need your tripod. And if you left your tripod, you know, six feet, eight feet behind you, you're running back to go get your tripod for that last target while the clock's running. So I really think from the military side of things, the CD matches are probably one of your best bangs for the buck. And there's no audience because it's, you only see the team the team in front of you scores you, and then they point everything out, and then you become the RO for the team behind you. So you only see two teams when you're moving. There's no real kind of audience watching. And I think that would be great for guys with the, with the egos and, and who don't want to be embarrassed or anything like that.
1: Yeah, your Frank, your match is, is uh, pretty pretty good. It's a it's a I would say it's a halfway blend between um, a competition dynamics and uh, and you know a, a pre- precision rifles uh, style match, you know, individual one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that um, I've I've kind of been seeing and telling other people and other students is um, you know the the NRL and the PRS those type of matches th- those are matches that allow you to just strictly focus on shooting right um your your shooting ability your ability to build positions on the clock uh you know maybe not really read win but uh you know make corrections and stuff like that um you know when you go to like let's say like a, a, a military style competition like mammoth or like bushnell sniper cup um those are those are all along the same lines of like a, a sniper competition that i did in the military where they're like critical thinking so not much shooting but critical thinking, if that makes sense. So like you're you're trying to figure out, okay, well, if I have to make this time hack, you know, this is and, and you, you gotta go through all these obstacles or whatever the case is. Um, you know, how am I gonna get, you know, the uh you know, my shots off or whatever, um, and then you know, find the targets obviously. Um, so that you know, that incorporates a lot of skill. So, you know, I always I always say that, you know, if you just wanna work strictly on shooting you know, attend an individual PRS or NRL match. That'll just exercise your shooting ability and that's it. that's all they're testing. But now you want to go more to like, okay, my ability to range my target, use my gear on the clock, stuff like that. Um, you know, now, now I need to experiment into the, you know, team matches, uh, competition dynamics or, you know, Bushnell or Mammoth. Yep, and then the
0: sniper side cup, because Carl does have that same background as you guys, all of us. You know, yep. Carl Taylor was, a, was a, a sniper, Marine Corps sniper. and instru- You know, he was an instructor, but he's a platoon, uh, platoon sergeant. And then he has the, the Army sniper group up there for the, uh, the West Coast that used that facility after the cup. Um, and so, yes, we are find it, range it, engage it. You know what I mean? And it's all on the clock. Uh, so it, it's a very similar thing. It's just not as hidden as a competition dynamics where our targets are a little easier to find, though we do do the wide, you know, the the wide field of view there where you're kind of like transitioning from straight on to 45 degrees this way to another 15 degrees up and over, over here. So you're, you're moving your, your angles a bit. And, And so I think that would be, you know, something to that, but, uh, on the to you know, to kind of circle back around to where we were, I want to come back to the urban side of things that Nick was talking about it, because that is sort of the PRS NRL speed element to it and the movement and having your gear in place. Because I think that's a big thing uh is the mindset of where what are you gonna bring in that building and how are you going to build a position? And then where are you going to move from there and there? And and there's a lot of different things going on. Is, is it, are you going to be camping out there? Is it a raid? Are you going to be in and be out, you know, the the different scenarios you guys might see. So I I kind of think we we went off a little bit when Nick was focusing in on that and, you know, let's, let's kind of circle back to that.
1: So one question I have for Nick, um, because, you know, I never got to go back to the, um, uh, the fleet after I left uh, sniper school as an instructor, you know, I went got straight out, and went to gun works. But um, now that you've uh, done a couple of comps now, Nick, and you've, you've obviously experienced with some some gear that um, competitors use, what gear have you brought back to the community that you would you would essentially put in your back and, and take on a mission?
2: Um, so probably two things, right? Uh, a tripod that wasn't meant for a uh, digital camera. <laughs> bought from Walmart for $30. Uh, that was absolutely mind-blowing to me. You know, um, for a long time, we used the Manfrotto tripods, which were really great, you know, but we were making our own kind of little hog saddle before hog saddle was a thing. And I remember going to Home Depot and buying a deck U-joint and putting an isomat in there, and, you know, and that's what my gun sat in. Um, and then the hog saddle came out, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing you know, like this is awesome. And then I discovered like Arca rail and I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. You know, and I have this carbon fiber tripod that I can do pull-ups off of and it only weighs, you know, five pounds. Um, and I show students, you know, like a carbon fiber tripod compared to the tripods that were issued. And I'm not knocking on the gear that were issued, but it's just such a difference of the stability that you can achieve off of these aftermarket tripods. Um, So I think a better tripod, number one, and then two, having a a solid bag that could be used for a lot of different things. And I'm a big proponent of having like things that have multiple uses, right? Um, So yeah, I could definitely use my ruck to shoot off as a a bag or whatnot. But some of the, the bags that are now out there are just so diverse that you can use them for so many things. You know, I can use it as a rear bag. I can use it, off of a barricade you know i can throw it on top of my tripod if i don't want to lock in for arca um so i think that those two things right there are probably the, the biggest change to my gear loadout that i have i have this really awesome bag from um, chas bales at warhorse development it's um just a little little four-legged bag and it's got a lightweight fill that i can use as a rear bag yeah the comanche a position bag Yep, and it only weighs, it weighs under a pound. So nobody can complain, well, like, oh, that's a gamer bag. You know, you wouldn't actually take that on a mission. Like, I carried that thing around in my ruck when I went through Mountain Sniper um, and tested it out for Chaz. And it, it's absolutely a great piece of gear. And it's so diverse with the things that I can do with it, too. I did that um, with... even so- I using carrying, it, girl, yep. Oh, what's that? Ahead, I so- remember
1: carrying around a four-pound uh, <laughs> freaking sand, sand stock, literally made out of sand, like... Okay, you, you can't tell me what I won't put in my pack. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I shot uh, your match,
0: Phil, at Gunworks up there, the, the the first day when you did it, sort of that that linear range, the square range, I had the uh, yeah. I had Chaz's um, the the Saracen, the big one. But then yeah. I had no clue. I'd never seen your Monster Lake. You, you know your your um, your Kanye there. Um, I've never seen that, and I didn't know how you were gonna have us move. So the that day, I carried the Comanche, because I had the Comanche with nice. me then, and I, I reduced my bag down, and my rear bag that I carried was an air-filled one, I had a tab air-filled one, so I switched all my sand-filled bags from the first day, the PRS-style day, and when we did the hunting field course day, which I thought was awesome, you guys did a fantastic job on that, Um, it, I switched to... An air-filled rear bag, and then the Chaz's uh, C- uh, Comanche that with the lighter fill in it, and that's how I did just because it was an unknown to me.
2: That's awesome,
1: Nick. You got you got
2: something? No, I mean that those two items right there are probably the, the biggest upgrades to the gear that I carry or don't carry. You know, I, I too also had that giant. Um, large sock filled with sand that probably weighed four pounds that really didn't provide a whole lot.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. Um, uh, the tripod in the bag, uh, cause those are, you know, those are, I would say, you know, two important kits that I, that I always have, um, you know, the, the, the tripod, um, you know, I, I just launched my match, um, uh, to the registration today, you know, my guns, uh, gun works, we call it long range experience now, just because, uh, West Lake is still in the air. Um, but, uh, you know, I've been getting mixed reviews on, on, uh, you know, my last match, uh, for those that didn't attend it, there's a lot of tripod deployment. And, um, you know, the reason I did that is, is cause, you know, I, I realized there's so many competitive shooters out there that don't know how to shoot off their tripod. And, and again, going back to the, uh, you know, uh, Frank and I's, um, talk our last podcast about understanding, about being a precision rifleman um, about the precision rifleman versus the precision rifle shooter. I mean, a rifleman should know how to utilize, I believe a, a tripod, because I mean, it just takes his ability to shoot. I mean, you know, that system super far away still, you know what I mean? In any position you can think of as long as you know how to deploy it correctly. You know what I mean? You know, so like everyone again, can shoot MOA, in the prone stuff like that. Everyone's always posting groups. Well, you, once you get them off their belly, it's like, okay, are you still a MOA shooter out to a thousand yards? Probably not. You know what I mean? But with a tripod, you know, you can definitely still be an MOA shooter standing, kneeling, sitting, you know what I mean? With a, with a, a tripod as your front support. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things I exercise at my last match because I want, I want the guys to, to, to come out of my match being a better rifleman and being able to understand what their tripod that they mo- ma- mainly use for uh, like binos and spotting scopes, what it's capable of.
0: Yeah. And I have one real quick point on that. I, if I had to like shave gear to go move, I got my one piece of gear, just like Nick says, if I only could take one thing, if they said, dude, you got to go from a to B, you got things in between that you have to, you have to, you know, problems you have to solve with your rifle. I want a tripod and if I have to like slim gear down, I'm going to take my bipod and get rid of it before I'm going to get rid of a tripod. Boom.
2: So Nick and absolutely I, it, it's yeah. It's so versatile to you. I think I'll never forget the day that I watched somebody use a tripod as rear support, but <laughs> not in the way that I thought it was going to be used. You know, um, when Marines think about rear support, like, Oh, you know, I put the buttstock on top of the back of it. I watched this dude pinch his buttstock to the side of his tripod that was fully extended and clean the stage. And I'm like, that's insane. You know, if that was like uh, an actual combat scenario, he transitioned probably between four or five different shooting positions in 60 seconds and had impacts on all of the targets in that time. It just amazed me at how stable it was not being used as like traditional tripod, but just as a rear support very quickly.
0: One quick question. Are you yeah. guys using arm bars like as a, um, you know, your, your wrist commanders as a standard piece of gear or is guys not doing that?
2: Um, so there is no standard issue arm bar. What not <laughs> to be honest with you, I use a ID card holder with a, um, uh, index card slid in it so I can see the lines. And then I write on top of that with a grease pen. Oh, um, that's, and- that's exactly
1: what I use. Yeah. The ID card holder that, I you know, you got at the PX like 10 bucks and then just cut the, uh, just made it, you know, the the straps short enough to just put it on my forearm.
0: Yeah, Dick Sporting Goods, man, the the pop football section, go to the football section and Dick Sporting Goods. They're like twelve dollars. And and to me, that should be another piece of kit that becomes something that's standardized for everybody because having that data so accessible. And and to kind of show them that it has that, like, focus on the electronics, like Phil was talking about, are they spinning that Kestrel every time they get up? You know, does every new stage, if you see a guy, and and just kind of throw this out there to the world, but if you see a guy who goes to every stage and starts spinning his Kestrel, uh, I'm kind of not a fan of that, like Phil was sort of implying uh, a little uh, earlier, but... It's like, you know, if you got hard data for for that DA or or that location or however you want to do it, if you, you know, showed up early at the match. And, like, Bo was a great example of what Nick was saying to build a range card and do that the day before when we showed up to check zeros. I mean, Bo was laying out that area, and he was the instructor. He was a West Coast instructor uh, who happened to be shooting there. He, he laid that out. and I mean, he, he drew a you know, full range card, you know what I mean, uh, that day before, even though we were going to get the books you know, later that day, but he still did the range card and did everything. But to me, I, I think a wrist commander is one of those necessary pieces of equipment that goes with the rifle more so than, than you know, thinking tripod and bags. I would look at my wrist commander as, a, as, a, as the same as my scope in a
2: way. But well, it's useless without it. I mean, if you don't have the data, you can't engage anybody. Um, well, I think that for active duty personnel that are utilizing a sniper system like that, they should have that kind of bigger armband. I use the ID card one because, I mean, it's competition shooting. You know, I mean, I'm just doing quick dopes. But in my actual work one with that arm bar, not only do I have my dopes in there, but I mean, I also have other pertinent information that I might need, you know. I can flip up that arm bar and there's a second page, you know, and now I have all the report formats that I need. So it's more than just having my, my dope in there. It has a lot of other important information that I might need, um, in a combat scenario. Yeah. We have yep. Kazovac nightline.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yep. Call, yep you're called fire and all that. Um, we used to carry the, for that same thing, rather than using a data book in the field, we carried those blue flight books, the, flight the crew checklist. Yes.
1: Yep, I
0: still have mine. Okay, I do I too. Got,
1: I still got mine. <laughs> yeah.
0: So that was, that was our flip book, you know what I mean? So you went through and you did. I mean, I still have everything. I have, I'm like, right behind me, I cleaned my office yesterday. I, I have my entire uh a binder from Sniper School still, and it's sitting right here in my office. But that flight crew checklist was, was like, the most valuable book we had because, like I said, I carried the radio a lot. I love the radio. Um, just because we never got to shoot as much well I, I I got to do more damage with a radio than I did with my m40 um just because like you were saying with the with the uh the round counts that we got so to me I'd suffer the the the, the 77 just because I knew I can I could cause havoc with it
2: oh uh, absolutely I mean everything in that flight crew checklist. I mean I had you know my field expedient antennas um which which frequencies to use at which time of the day, um, you know, the call for fire, everything. It was, it was super important. But unfortunately that thing weighed like six pounds after I'd laminated.
1: Everything. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome.
0: Well, I'm glad they're still doing so, it
1: though. I'm um, not to, not to, uh, do a big kick left here, but, uh, I'm curious for, for Nick, um, what, what kind of, um, Uh, you know, let's say day one fundamental uh, errors do you see um, with some of the students that go through your course? Because for the audience to keep in mind, um, Nick works at a follow-on sniper course. So like in order to attend Nick's course at Mountain Sniper, you have to already been uh, graduated of the the basic sniper course. So everyone essentially is on the same baseline, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But do you still normally see, you know, let's say day one errors um, you know, when you're, uh, when you're out there at the range?
2: Absolutely. So day one, um, we sat down as a cadre and we talked about, you know, what do we want to accomplish with day one? Cause I, I honestly feel that's probably the most important day because of their zero. Um, and a lot of times we identify, you know, problems with guns, problems with scopes, et cetera, just because of that day and the, um, I don't say exercise, but the different types of shoots that we do. So to alleviate a lot of those day one errors, as you say, you know, we start off with um, the traditional zero. Hey, you guys get down the prone, get a good zero, um, your guns. And then we move into, um, paper drills at a hundred for most of the uh, morning of the first day. So they'll do everything from, um, dropping down to the prone from the standing and have 10 seconds to take a shot. So they do that 10 times and then we'll evaluate their group. We do a um, dialing exercise um, from Tyler Hughes's uh, max ordinate, his little uh, paper drill where you dial five mils up and four mils or um, 0.4 left, you know, just to work on uh, dialing drills. And then they do the, uh, the stranger where they shoot five right-handed and then five support hand, you know, in time limit. And the reason we do it like that is we, we want to break the rust because some of these dudes are like, hey, when was the last time you shot? And they're like, not since I went to sniper school, you know, a year ago. Um, so we don't want to put them, you know, on steel right away. We want them to see, you know, all those little errors that you make, you know, with bad fundamentals on paper. Like you can see it at 100. You know, paper doesn't lie. You know, whereas like, you know, if we're shooting groups at six or something, they could be like, oh, you know, the wind or you know, it's probably the SD of the ammo, So we really want to expose them to a lot of paper drills that first day to kind of like bust the rust and get some good fundamentals back. Um, Because a lot of those guys haven't shot in a long time.
0: Yeah, that's a paper ratch out, man. And a a good target for you guys, and Phil, you guys would like it as well, Box to Bench Precision. And he's up there in Washington. He's I think he's Border Patrol, Uh, but he has this Box to Bench Precision, and he has like some of my. But he has a hunting... paper target that you download a cheat sheet and he gives you three aiming points there's three orange dots at the bottom and then there's like five or six rows of animals with a very tiny kill center for 100 yard paper is is what it is it's 100 yard paper and it has all different animals and it even has some little bonus like squirrel on a tree a rabbit um, but there's, like, elk, caribou, deer, all these different animals. And what they'll do is you you print this cheat sheet, and you'll say, okay, center dot, elk over here. And then you have to go up X amount of mils and then over, and the goal is to hit the kill zone. And it's a scope test target, but it's a game. And it it's really hard. To, I mean, you have to double check. I mean, I would have people be doing their reticle as well because— he might be a tenth or two off here or there, but I've been using them, especially like at Treadproof, I brought these targets down, and because everybody can have their own paper target down there, they have a, because it's it started out handgun carbine bay, so everybody's got a, a frame, and I put this target up, and then I just walk behind everybody and say, okay, you're going to be doing this target here, and it's this, and, and you got to range it, they can either manually, or I can give them a number. And they'll dial it on and they gotta hold it, but it's a fun little thing from box to bench precision.
1: I like it. That sounds pretty cool. I just I just wrote it down in my notes here. Box it, I'm gonna check it out after this.
2: Yeah. Um, but like you were saying, you know, doing those paper drills, it allows us to find um, a lot of the errors, you know, that we typically see that they would make up top before we start shooting high angle with them so at least we know now it was like hey this dude's zero was off his scope was loose you know the barrel shot out etc um any issues that we might have before we start getting into the long range stuff so we do that and then they spend the rest of the day um starting that range card uh, and their trps so I, I think that that first day has really started to uh, alleviate a lot of those um bad habits or breaking the rust that we typically see with the shooters if that answered your question phil
1: it does thank you um and uh, i I remember you posted about this um maybe a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago now um about follow through and being able to spot your impact now when we went through sniper school in 2011 i mean mean, even even kind of when i was teaching um before I, i you know started venturing out into the competitive space but I mean, as soon as you sent that round, like, I mean, you're running the bolt. Um, is, is that something that you're, you're kind of getting away from and with, with these new students?
2: Um, it is. And, you know, maybe it's just my opinion um, of how we should be shooting or whatnot. But w- we preach to the students, you know, you should picture yourself on the line as, as being by yourself. You know, realistically, uh, in a high sight, is that other dude spotting for you or is he on another long gun? And then the guy's on the RO and the other guys, he's on security, you know? So who's spawning for you? It's you. Um, and we, we really, really harp on that, especially with these guys using the Tremor 3 reticles now, you know, it's like, hey, you have a ruler in front of your face. So when you shoot, um, your position should be great. And that's something that we work on a lot. We even created an entirely new class. We I mean, did our CR, uh, CCRB, um, our cur- curriculum review, um, was that, hey, we need an... Uh, Mountain marksmanship class, and that's what we named it. And it was just different ways to control your rifle from sliding down a hill or ways to, you know, support the rear of the rifle. Because, you know, even though they are shooting in the prone sometimes, it's like, hey, I'm shooting on a, you know, 30-degree angle or something like that. This isn't a nice prone. You know, I'm laying all kind of wonky down the side of this mountain. Um, And so we really harp on that, that, hey, you need to be able to see your own impact. And a lot of times, you know, we'll just have the other student just and the gun next to them and we'll make them shoot, you know, either we'll dial their, their windage or whatnot, have them shoot and be like, tell me your correction, you know, we'll make them use that reticle to measure it out. And at the end of the day, you know, they're responsible for that round. Yeah. You have a spotter behind you, but that should just be um, a double check of what you already know. You know, boom, I just missed. that was 0.5 off the right side. My spotter's like, Hey, that's 0.6. Oh, all right. That sounds good. You know, and then you make that follow-on shot within five seconds because people don't stand there while they're getting shot at. You know, you need to make that re-engagement fast.
1: I like it. That's awesome, man. Um, it's it's good. It's refreshing to hear that. And and um, uh, you know, I'm on the same page uh, with you. And and uh, you know, there's different different thoughts in in the community about that, but I'm definitely 100% with you that that the shooter has 100% accountability of that of that round that he takes. Um, and he should know where it's going down range to make the appropriate correction. And like like you said, the spotter is just there to confirm what the shooter should already know. Um, going back to your uh, mar- mountain marksmanship, um, <laughs> I always tell my students, um, you know, as hunters, it's like you know, you don't have to really worry about you know angled shooting, you know, the math behind it, um, you know, because the rangefinders that a lot of the guys have. Um, which are rangefinders? They correct for the, the range, so as long as they range the target correctly, they will give them their dial too. Um, I tell them that uh, when they're shooting in an angled position, uh, up or downhill, uh, it's it's tougher to find a shooting position suitable to take a shot at an angle.
2: Oh, so I agree, hundred percent. That, 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 that's um, kind of what
1: that's kind of what I was getting at with your w- when you were talking about that mountain marksmanship.
2: And we looked at, you know, the, what we were teaching up there and we're like, why are all the quals in the prone, you know? Um, and so we, we kind of did a hard steer away from that. You still have three quals in the prone, but now we also have two different tricots or tripod quals. We have barricade quals, and what kind of bothers me too, uh, a lot of Marines are like, oh, no, why are you shooting off of barricades for mountain? It's like, well, dude, it's not. It's not an urban barricade, right? I can't plant trees on top of Rocket Mountain, this barren wasteland. So I have to bring a barricade to represent a tree branch or, um, you know, something else that you might find in a mountainous environment, like a fence, you know, um, different things like that. Or a big-ass rock. Yeah, yeah, a big-ass rock, right? Or up there when it snows, build a
0: friggin' thing when it snows.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So that's why I said, you know, like having that tripod in that bag to be able to shoot off, lots of different options and we even included a sniper challenge at the end too where they have to run to different stations under time and figure out how to shoot off of you know different props that are there such as um you know a barrel 55 gallon barrel off of uh, a cattle gate um a rooftop that's angled up and those are that's part of our uphill shoot so we change things up a little bit on them and make them shoot uphill into for the downhill off of uh, barricades and props
0: and that was gonna be my question for you guys and 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 for both of you to kind of address this on that side. Is the movement to kind of like if you think of a, a a stage at a competition, okay? So you stand and say five yards back from the prop or whatever they've given you. And to me, this is where you see like fill with the tripods and different things where people get tangled in their gear and things like that. So you have this sort of five yard move forward, drop down, build your position. And it's one thing to kind of give somebody three minutes to build a position. It's another thing to have that 90 seconds or under this time limit to sort of get in and out of the different positions you may have to do. You know, now they've sort of limited the movement where you're you're kind of just going up and down a ladder. But at the same time, we used to kind of move it where if you shot off this prop, okay, you got to displace to this one. And then you got to build off of that. Then you're going to displace to the next one. That was sort of how we used to do it because we had more space than than they do sort of now. But what kind of training do you give guys to practice getting in and out of the position without getting tangled in their equipment, understanding you know, my, my 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 Comanche bag's going on top of this rock, my rifle's gonna go here, I'm gonna use this, like you were saying, the tripod leg for rear support without getting tangled in it. And that kind of movement, what I what I mean. I mean, we, we we're so used to kind of the longer movements, the land nav type of deals or or kind of sprinting from here to here. But it's those, you know, you're going from that sitting, kneeling, standing with gear and equipment while still trying to build a position at the same time as quickly and effectively as possible?
2: So um, that's exactly how I wanted our uphill shoot to be, was that, hey, I take a shot, now I have to displace. So I kind of like wrestled with it in my mind for a while. I'm like, how long should they get at each position? And then I was like, well, it doesn't matter. I was like, it should just be overall time. Um, and so they make a 200 meter run just to the first position from there, they shoot off of a tire and then they run another 200 meters to the next position. So I think total, they run uh, probably close to 900 or thousand meters for the whole uphill shoot, but the way to practice it, that, um, somebody showed me, I can't take credit for this, uh, Nico detour showed me this cause I was, I was timing out a lot, um, from competitions. And it was like, you need to get better at employing your gear faster. And I'm like, well, okay, so how do we work on this? So what we would do is, um, whatever we were practicing on, right, you get 10 seconds, no matter what, per shot. So um, let's say I'm shooting off of, you know, a fence, and it's the top rung. Um, he'll have the shot timer, and then boom, 10 seconds start. So I just go to the rung, and I build my position, and I have to get the shot off within 10 seconds. And then I'll reset and do it over again. And just doing it over and over again, building that muscle memory of how to quickly get into position for, you know, that height of a barricade really paid off for me uh, in the long run. And that's something that I brought back to the school to show the students.
0: And that's awesome. Phil, what, what's your take on that same thing, building the in and out of the positions for people practicing and training?
1: Oh, yeah, that, I'm I'm 100% on board with that. I, I actually, you know, I posted a couple of videos about that, doing that the other day, like, you know, just repetition of in and out, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to run through a full drill, <coughs> you know, or an eight to 10 round stage to get training in, you know what I mean? It's Like isolate, isolate your training task. Hey, I'm, I'm having, a am having a hard time with my kneeling position. Okay. Build your kneeling position on the same prop, you know, 20 times until you can't get it until you can't get it wrong. You know what I mean? Um, why work on all these other things? If you're, if you're still having trouble with just this one thing. And, and you know, that's, that's, um, that's, that's awesome. That uh, it's just awesome that that training mindset is still flowing uh, in the, uh, in the community. And and, and it's a, it's a testament, you know, kind of everything that Nick is saying. It's like, I mean, I'm kind of going back like, man, that's exactly, that was my mindset when I was a cyber school instructor. Uh, Everything that Nick is saying, it's like, we're on the same page because I mean, we weren't taught that um, at, at all. It's like, Hey, this is our training task. These are our targets. And, you know, um, in, in our instructors, again, uh, our, as long as you paid attention, our instructors gave us the answers to the test. Um, but then, you know, when, when you're out there at a competition, no one's giving you the answers to the test. They're giving you a standard in which you need to complete a task. Hey, you've got 90 seconds. These are your barricades that you need to uh, shoot off of or these are your shooting positions these are the targets that you need to shoot go, you know what I mean? Um, so you got to figure that on yourself. And that's kind of, you know, uh, that's w- why I enjoyed the aspect. And yeah, there's some certain gamey stuff that uh, I wouldn't take back, but for the most part, and, and not only that, I mean uh, the civilian guys that have, I've, I've probably learned more stuff about shooting in my craft and just the shooting discipline uh, from these civilian shooters than I ever did in the Marine Corps.
0: Oh, yeah. Easily. I mean, that was what attracted me down to Texas and all that, you know, coming off and and having the chip on your shoulder. And then you go down there because they invite you. And it's like, holy shit, these guys are friggin' not only fast, they're accurate. They're moving around, you know, like, you know, spider monkeys and stuff. And it's like, holy cow, man. We never did this. We were, you know, slow, methodical, you know, don't yep. let them see the brass coming out of your, you know. <laughs> and, and it's like, man, forget you know, who cares? Run that damn bolt, go do it, and don't sweat it. If they, if they see your brass, you've already failed, you know, that kind of deal.
1: No, definitely a time and place for everything. I, I appreciate uh, Nick definitely sharing um, sharing his, uh, his concepts and kind of what he's doing right now in, in the active duty. Cause, cause you know, if I, if being honest with you, this is what I tell everyone, like, you know, that's why I compete. That's why I put myself out there. Cause you know, if, if I figured, you know, once these guys realize, Oh, he's a sniper and stuff like that, it's like, well, oh, he's going out there and kind of, you know, putting himself out there. Like why shouldn't I be able to do that? You know, mm-hmm. Um, hoping to just get guys like us in the community <clears throat> just out there competing just cause I know what, it, I mean, I know what they're not getting back in their units. Um, uh, you know, not to say that uh, you know their leadership or whatever is not you know setting up stellar training, but just a whole another world um, that they could s- s- essentially tap into um, that uh, the military side um, hasn't yet offered.
0: Well, you're being proactive, you know, it's it's not your while we're still engaged in sort of the last war, if you want to put it, it's it's still it's the present war, really. But like for me, we were we were fighting Vietnam in the in the 80s, you know, and that didn't really do us any favors, Uh, you know, because everything changed when I deployed and went to the Gulf. And now I'm on a ship that, you know, they never really did anything. And I'm fast roping onto an oil platform and it's like, well, everything I did was in the woods in the prone. And, and and you know, well, wait a minute here. But now you guys have you're you're in the present, really, but you're being proactive and looking down the line because I mean, the woods are disappearing in a way. Nobody wants to, you know, nobody's fighting for a palm tree, really. They're 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 fighting for a, a valuable piece of real estate, which is a building and a location, and and so it, it's a different sort of mindset. And I, I, I can really appreciate kind of what's going on. Nick, is there anything you want to uh, – because I'm coming up on the hour for you guys, and I don't want to keep you too long, um, but this has been a great conversation. But, Nick, you want to wrap anything up on, like, like what you're seeing and to drive guys to kind of get out of their, their, their hide and, and to come out into the light to, to do some of this stuff? I mean, throw it out there.
2: I mean, it's what I tell – all of our students, and I mean, even other snipers, you know, that are in the cadre or whatnot, um, I probably had, the the best mentor I ever had was Gene Hallenstein at Urban, and he said it best, you know, if you have the title sniper, you should be the most knowledgeable dude in the room about a bolt gun. Um, And until people take ownership of that, they're never really going to succeed as snipers. Um, Just get involved with it. Uh, read about reloading, get involved in a competition. It doesn't have to be a huge competition or anything. It can be a club match, you know, or even just with your buddies. Make it competitive, you know, push yourself. Um, and that's the way I hope the community starts to look at the shooting aspect of it. I know that there's a lot more than just shooting, and we have to be incredibly well rounded in everything that we do, patrolling and calm. But at the end of the day, you still have the title sniper and. If you get put into a position where you have to take that shot and you miss, it's like, "Hey, man, that, that's your profession, and you're failing at it." Do your job, <laughs> right? Yeah, shoot better. Yeah,
0: but I mean, honestly, I I was just at Shot Show in 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 the week after. I've been talking to .gov guys. Um, in one, he was a Marine, and he he's involved with with the uh, federal side of stuff and he they're doing the same thing. They got one of their guys who's really big. He he's on the east coast and he's really big doing the competitions and they're they're trying to work with the qual cuz their quals prone as well and he's like, "Dude, tripod, tripod, tripod." And and, and I mentioned this in in the last one where, you know, they're, they're like through sniper craft and the different organizations for the law enforcement. They only had like three prone shots over the last year or two all of them have been alternate positions. And so that's kind of what's going on with what you guys are doing. And it's just great to see that it, it it's it's not that you're coming out of the military, like in Phil's case, and going right into competition and saying, you know, and seeing people shooting better and being fast and being dynamic and going, oh, well, all that crap they did in the military. That's not right. I'm just going to focus on this instead. Phil's blending both of them together. He's bringing in that hunting aspect. He's he's being a well-rounded rifleman. He's not just being a competitor or a gamer or this. He he, he's not putting like a a, a narrow label on himself. Uh, He he's bringing it wide. Now we hear Nick, and Nick's doing the same thing. He's saying I'm active duty. I need to broaden my horizons and guys, you should get out there and do this competition stuff. It's going to make you a better warfighter and it's not, it it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It should be all of the above, you know, like you're saying, if, if we're, if we're going to hold the title of sniper, well, we should be doing all these precision rifle sniper things, regardless of what it's asking us to do. And we should have a knowledge behind it and why we're doing it. What's the why? Why are you going to do this? Why are you doing that thing? So I, it's really awesome to, to to that you guys you know reached out this way, and and wanted to come on. I think this is going to be a, a you know a, a a sort of pinned episode for a lot of people, where where they're going to keep coming back to it because it's just it, it's it's th- this is a masterclass on the direction people should be going, and that the, it doesn't matter if you're military, law enforcement, competitive, or just shoot for. Your own entertainment. This is a master class on a direction you should be going right here.
1: Yeah. What, 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 you, I mean, you nailed all of it, uh, Frank, and I appreciate you, uh, saying it the way you did. Um, you know, and, and a lot of times people are, you know, we've we talked about it, people bash you because you, 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 you think they think that you're always bashing on the competition. It's like, no, like if you, like, l- if you listen to Frank, like he wants you to get out there and shoot, you know what I mean? Um, but you know, people are always saying like, "Oh, Frank's always bashing competition shooters and stuff like that." It's like, well, there's some competitive shooters out there that you know are d bags, but it's not all of them. Right? <laughs> no,
0: I don't. Uh, bash, I don't. I don't bash <laughs> the competition. I will you know, bash, bash compe- competitors, right? I will bash a competitors yeah. that that I yep. think act unsportsmanlike. But I don't. One b- Right? I don't bash competitions. I'm still going to them myself. If I hated them, yeah. why am I getting up and going? You know, yep. that's the difference. And and I totally, dude, the Snipers Hide Cup is the longest running competition that's been uninterrupted in a way. You know what I mean? There, there there's no other event that that's of its type that is still going um that's been around longer. ASC maybe we're about the same time, but ASC's kind of under the radar a little bit, but other than that, you know, rifles only, yes, they're still doing their competitions in the same manner, and, and they were before me because they brought me down there. But as far as, like, a named event, the Sniper's Hide Cup is the longest-running one. So I don't hate competitions. I've just seen the change in the competitor that didn't make me happy. And that's a, di- that's a, that's a very important, de- you know, difference between saying I don't like competition. No, I just didn't like a certain direction competitors went. That's all. And 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 you like you said that's not everybody that's ten percent that's two percent it it depends where you go and who's there but it it, it that's all I'm just being a a, a, a a troll about it but that's how people absorb information today but you're absolutely right Phil I mean it, it this is this is what makes people a practical precision marksman a practical precision rifleman and and that's what we're trying to build here. We're we're not trying yeah. to build one trick ponies.
1: Nope. Cool man, it an awesome podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, but, man. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks Frank for uh, letting us use your uh, your platform. Nick, thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule, man. And thanks for uh, staying in the fight, dude. I I really mean that. Yeah, definitely.
0: Absolutely. You, I, I, oh. go, go ahead, Nick. You, you. I was just gonna tell oh. you just to wrap it up and give us give us an out for you as well, but um, I want you to have the last word.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to um, say thanks for having me on the show and letting us talk about these things. Um, I'm really passionate about, you know, things that are going on in the community, and I know Phil is too, and hopefully the word gets out to the right people and they take it to heart. So I appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, you guys have a good night.
0: Yeah, my door is always open to you guys, man. Anytime you want to come on, just hit me on, you know, the same way you did, and, and we'll make this happen in the exact same manner. The door is always open to you. But uh, stay on the line really quick. I'm gonna end this out. I'll do the music and end it out, and then and then I'll just hang up with you. Okay. Sounds good. Here Sounds we go. Good. Thanks, guys.